This is Corolla Digital. Hey, you guys, it's me, Allison. I just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you like what you're hearing, which, let's face it, you do, tell a friend. You can listen to us all sorts of places. A couple of them would be iTunes or AllisonRosen.com. This show is sponsored by NatureBox. NatureBox ships great-tasting, healthy snacks right to your door. Forget the vending machine and start snacking smarter with healthy, delicious treats like dark cocoa almonds. Support this podcast by ordering a free NatureBox sampler box at NatureBox.com slash Allison. That's right. Free Nature Box snacks are found at naturebox.com slash Allison. Allison Rosen, Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Allison, Allison, with perfect good times never end. Allison Rosen, doing the wavy pencil pants again. Allison Rosen, Allison's your new best friend. Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. It is me, Allison Rosen, and I am sitting here with Scott Carter, executive producer of Real Time with Bill Maher and playwright, playwright of the play Discord, which is currently at the Geffen Playhouse. At the Geffen Playhouse through December 7th. We're hoping to extend that in the next day or so. So uh, we've already had two extensions. We're hoping for at least one more. Very exciting. So, and I know that there's also a new companion night called Harmony, but let's get to that in a little while when we get people more up to speed on what the play is and stuff. So anyway, a lot of listeners of my show also listen to the Adam Carolla show. So they will remember that you came on the Adam Carolla show and we talked about all sorts of stuff. But I was saying to you right before the show started that there were a few stories that you started getting into, but then you didn't get to finish. And it's been keeping me up at night ever since I'm, I'm, only exaggerating a tiny bit. Ever since your appearance on the Adam Carolla show, I've been like, but wait, what happened? <laughs> so the story that you were telling was about how you had an asthma attack and then that led to this epiphany and this year and all of that. So can you tell me about that and also where you grew up and like what got, you know, the what happened before the asthma attack as well? I, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, we had, since I had terrible asthma, my family moved from Kansas City to Arizona, which was thought to be a good place for asthmatics. Yes. My husband's father had the same thing where they sent him when he alone, I think when he was, I don't know, it, it almost was a Dickensian to bring up something relating to your play, a Dickensian kind of childhood because he was alone in Arizona because it was like the only place he could breathe. And there was a, there was a National Asthma Institute in Tucson that I remember one time my parents taking me to and showing me, and it felt like a Dickensian workhouse. <laughs> and so instead of sending me there by myself, they all moved. That's nice. My breathing may have improved, but my guilt also <laughs> quintupled by virtue of taking my mother away from the place that she'd been her entire life. Right. My father had to – it was tough on his business for my brothers. They had to leave school. How many brothers? I have three brothers and I have a sister. So there were five of us. And, um, you guys all moved. We all moved. And um, so, you know, and then, and then I moved to New York in 1976. I'm ancient. I moved to New York in 76 <laughs> and, um, you know, was trying to be – I was a stand-up comic at the time. And I, I had this asthma attack and I was put into Bellevue at 1st and 26th Street for a week and when I got out of the hospital, I had this kind of overwhelming sense that everything about the world had shifted for me. And I went from someone who'd been indifferent or hostile to the concept of God 
to someone who instantly felt like, of course there is a God. How could there not be a God? Because you were spared or? Uh, Well, no, because the world seemed overwhelmingly beautiful. It was like the end of It's a Wonderful Life where Jimmy Stewart is running Mm -hmm. down the street (laughs) saying, Merry Christmas, post office, and Merry Christmas, movie house, and he sees everything differently. Or Scrooge, getting back to Dickens, on Christmas morning, he wakes up and he realizes he's not dead. He can still make things up to his nephew, to Bob Cratchit, to Tiny Tim, and so he starts about doing it. Um, and, And it's not an uncommon thing, this notion of going into a bliss state. But what I wasn't prepared for was that it would kind of fade over a period of time, that all of these new insights that I had um, any disagreement? I'd, I, I started calling friends of mine who I had grudges against and just started telling them how I, I forgave them for everything they'd ever done for me. And I hope they would forgive me for anything I had ever done to them. And I, I would end phone calls with, I love you, Aww. male or female, <laughs> uh, um, um, family members, all sorts of people. Some people I hadn't talked to in years. Did people appreciate it or were they like, what is up with him? Both. I mean, it went both ways, and and some people completely got it, and some people would kind of share with. That's another thing, when you start reorienting your approach to the world, and you get yourself open to some things that previously you had shut the door on. What you find is that people start opening up to you, like people started telling me that they had had similar experiences, or that they had had near death experiences, or that someone had just died, or someone was that they knew was terminally ill and their notion of life had shifted. Um, and and so all of that was kind of reinforcing to me. But at the same time, what was happening was this feeling was disappearing. And when I got to about day four, day five, and the euphoria was kind of going, I would have to do things like I would jog <laughs> until I got an endorphin rush. And that kind of approximated. Or I would start replicating like I started going – Back, well, I had to go back to Bellevue for checkups once a month, but whenever I went back, I would kind of retrace the path of this ambulance that had come into the emergency room and how I'd gotten out and I went into the emergency room and then they put me into a room on the fifth floor or whatever. And I was just trying to remember everything about that day until I got back to this state. And then at some point I realized some of that was kind of silly. It was gone just like you can't go back to – high school or kindergarten or whatever, it's gone. Time has moved on. Now, how? what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Now, for people who don't, of which I'm one, have asthma, what is an asthma attack like? A lot of people think an asthma attack is a disease of the lungs, and actually it's a, a malfunctioning of the tubes leading into the lungs. So in the way that you're, if you, a healthy person with no respiratory ailments, if you walk into a coal mine where the air is terrible, you're Um, The tubes leading to your lungs will kind of shut down a little bit as a protective so you will not inhale Mm -hmm. toxic air. Well, for an asthmatic, that's going to happen and and nothing is occurring. There's actually nothing in the air that's changing. Um, And it's one of these mysterious diseases, and it's actually on the increase now, especially in in urban areas. Um, It's kind of mysterious in that they don't really know what causes it, and there's so many different triggers. And the best explanation that I've given to myself is a little it's a little bit like blackjack where you're trying to get up to 21 but not go over. Mm-hmm. So let's say stress could be five points. Uh, you eat the wrong food and that could be another five or six. And then you could have um, – it could be uh, pollution. And, and all of a sudden you're at 22 and now you've got an attack. And when an attack comes on, which I imagine you've been experiencing since you were a little two, kid. Two years old. Yeah. Wow. What, is, what does that feel like? 
It feels like you are instantly a hundred years old and that your chest is cement and that it's not flexible and moving the way that it should. And you start trying to strain to inhale and get good air into your lungs. And um, and then also what's happening is you realize you're slowly suffocating. So there's also a panic that, that comes to this. And um, so I had – I've had many um, close calls, none as close as the one I had on this day. And what happened on that day? Well, on that day I woke up. It was my – I think – second or third date with the woman who's now now is my wife. We've been married for 25 years and have two kids. Um, and I just woke up and couldn't be able to breathe. And also, I'd had this orientation in life of I'd gotten too much. Like um, of the five kids, I was the cost overrun project. <laughs> like I was, I, was the, I was the lone ranger. I was the movie that the studio thought was going to do well, but then it wound up costing too much. <laughs> And, and so I had this sense of any kind You're of You're like a tax write off. I well, I'm a loss leader. Right. I'm 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 something by which my, my parents, I'm sure, are always weighing, do we get him medicine or do we get a new football for the healthy ones? <laughs> and and so you're growing up with this sense that too many people have done too much for me. I don't mean to laugh at this. Well well, but I'm happy that I can actually look back on it now with, you know, with a greater sense of perspective. But but at the time, so in other words, so this woman's sleeping in bed next to me and I'm beginning to get this attack, but I don't want to bother her until it gets to the place where it really does – you know, it is bad and I eventually – we eventually have call 911 and um, – I mean at this point, are you able to get any air or are you uh, – I, I was down to – when they took – when they measured my – uh, it's called a, a peak flow meter is what measures your ability to, to get air in and out. And I was at about 11%. And those inhalers don't work or anything well, like that? Well, you can use them too much. Oh. And then they stop working? They stop working. Or if there are too many toxins, I mean, she had a cat and probably hadn't, I mean, why had she had a reason to prepare for me being <laughs> this um I'm just reading John Cleese's book because he's on Real Time on Friday and he just talks about growing up with the thought that he is a wuss, <laughs> with the thought that his father pampered him, his mother was crazy, his father pampered him. And so even though he eventually was six foot six, he was this enormous guy, but he had this sense of being physically completely incapable and to be intimidated by much smaller uh, people or gangs of people. Um, so, you know, I, I grew up with some of that sense also of just being – and it's also – the other thing about asthma is it's like, you know, kids – and this wasn't my growing up, but I have kids whose parents were alcoholics who would beat them. They wouldn't have to beat them every day. In other words, if you beat a child on Monday, on Thursday, you remember the Monday beating. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be beaten again. You're still flinching on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. But you can't trust when you come in the door you're not going to get hit again. Right. It's trauma. And so the same thing is true with it asthmatic. I, I got to a place where I feared falling asleep, that I, that I feared when I got up. You'd have one. I would be having an attack, wouldn't be able to breathe. Um, I identified at the time with the movie, Mel Brooks's movie of The Elephant Man, because the night he died was the night he decided that for once in his life he wanted to rest his head and sleep like everyone else and he cut off um, the you know oxygen to his – I mean he kind of um, cut off the, the stream of oxygen and he died that night. Um, so anyway, um, 
but but also what was accompanying this epiphany when I got out of the hospital was also this sense of new health. So um, and that and the reason why they kept me in the hospital other times I'd gone to the emergency room and they'd gotten me better and then go back home. This time, the doctor, a guy named Frank Adams, who was New York Magazine, one of the top 100 doctors in New York, head of chest lungs at Bellevue, and he said, look, why don't you just stay here for a week, and we're going to stabilize you. You're kind of going from one um, emergency to the next, to the next, to the next. Stay here and let us stabilize you, and we will monitor you from now on, and you're going to have a better record of health. And so I thought, you know, why not? You know, and, and then also after you have these episodes, you kind of look back and you wonder, for instance, this bliss state that I went, that I went into. Well, was that because I was on prednisone or they put me on <laughs> prednisone, which is one of the things they do for asthmatics. But I'd been on the present prednisone all week and actually was at a lower dosage mm-hmm. when I left the hospital that day than when, they, than when they first gave me shots of adrenaline, when I epinephrine when I came into the hospital or the prednisone they immediately got me on. Uh, and when I kind of how I see it now so many years later, because this was 1986, is I just think that um, I was in these white hospital rooms with no visual stimuli and how when I finally got out and I and you're just hit by New York, <laughs> Manhattan, you know, I remember there was a guy selling Sabrette hot dogs and I just stood and stared at him for a minute thinking what an incredible universe to have included this genius who's selling these <laughs> hot dogs or when somebody would walk down the street with a boombox because this was the 80s. I just remember thinking, oh, great, you have brought music for everyone. How, <laughs> how wonderful. Um, and, and just and, – and, and, or, or you know, like if you watch a documentary and everyone's wearing old fashions and, and, the, and the clothing is old, mm-hmm. everything seems different. But, but even it could be a city you live in like Los Angeles. But if I'm watching a documentary from 1995 or something, everything is a little bit different. That's how all of life seemed to me. It's amazing. Like life sparkled. Well, and it was like and, – and when it began to fade, I, I didn't want to go back to being – I felt like I've been the asleep guy for 30 years and now I want to be the awake guy like I've been this last week. So I'm going to change things I do in my life to accommodate that. You said that you identified with Elephant Man. Um, why? Well, because he was kind of a freak who couldn't be normal and he had the oh, – oh, here's a perfect example. I remember being a kid and going to at, – at the time that my parents uh, ran out of all the normal doctors and this is before the internet, you know, where you could be comparing things with people all over the world, uh, living in Kansas City. And once we got out throughout normal doctors, we started going to these crackpots. We started going to – we went to this Viennese homeopath who did acupuncture, and this is 1959, 1960. Eventually, authorities came in and took away his equipment. People didn't understand this Chinese notion of curing, of curing people. Homeopaths believe in, in giving, in treating people with seeds from flowers. Mm. I mean, all this kind of, and, and I remember one time I was in his office and I had a pack of baseball cards and he was walking behind me and he looked at the baseball cards and he said, and it was like Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays and Ernie Banks. And he looks at them and he goes, um, they're all sick. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're, they're, they're playing baseball every day. They're getting paid all this money. Everybody loves them. I'm, I think I'm the one that's sick. Um, he once said to me, um, the, night, the night air is very bad for you and daylight isn't good either. <laughs> Sage. Yeah. 
So, so we kind of got to the place of just being desperate. Yeah. I mean, there was one night where, where I was having a, an attack, and my parents are there, and we're in his and his his house, this modernistic house that was in Denver. We had to travel from Kansas City to see this guy, and but it was like one of the futuristic modern houses in the universal horror pictures from the 1930s where the where it's like a a forward looking mad scientist that's what this guy's house was mm-hmm. like and one night i remember i'm having an asthma attack and i'm on the table my parents are there and he said we are not leaving until he is cured <laughs> and then i just remember waking up the next morning in the hotel bed i must have fallen asleep at some point and they just you know took me off in the car and and there I woke up, but I wasn't cured. Um, you just get desperate and you start trying different things. Um, but with the elephant man, was it the, your description of the, that final scene, like almost puts <clears throat> tears in my eyes, was it this yearning to just be normal? Well, here's an example. The, uh, under this doctor whose name was Francois Bellicosi, uh, he had this extreme diet where I could only eat maybe five or six, I mean, turnips, uh, I, I could have, uh, I mean, millet, oats, barley. I, I couldn't really have anything from a grocery store. And we would have Kansas farmers in overalls deliver grain sacks to our kitchen door and they would ask my mother, do you have livestock? <laughs> no, I have a child, <laughs> you know. And um, But anyway, one, one night, I remember in the middle of the night, going down when I was six or seven and just opening up the cupboard and having the cereals and have putting the milk on the cereals. And I then, you know, of course, had an attack and got sick. But it was like I just wanted to have that experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd seen the commercials on television <laughs> for Alphabets or, or, or Lucky Charms or whatever it was. And I wanted to know what the taste was like. And I was willing to get sick to have the taste. So how do you live now? And then... Now that I keep taking you off on tangents, then let's go back to what you did when you started losing that feeling. But now in terms of of diet and, you know, situations and things, how do you deal with it? I'm pretty good on diet. I meditate twice a day, um, you know, and try to get my sleep. I, I try to be pretty good about things and also asthma – Often, and this happened with me, it, it generally becomes less once you get to adolescence. Then for mm. me, it kind of came back in my late 20s, early 30s when I was in New York. But some of that also was stress. I was a struggling stand-up. You know, you're trying to make a living, you know, all, all sorts of things. Um, but, I'm, but I'm pretty stable now. Oh, well, that's – when's the last time you had an attack? Oh, I don't know, a few years ago. But And now also, for instance, I will keep an epinephrine, a, a, a syringe of adrenaline – at the office, I'll keep it at home, I'll keep it, you know, so that if I do have an attack and I can't get right to an emergency room, I'm going to be okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I'm, I try to do as many things as I possibly can to, to make sure my health is good. And in terms of diet, are there, is there like a prescribed asthma diet or are there certain things you have to avoid? It's more like I just, I mean, I stopped, I eat a little bit of meat, but I kind of been almost uh, very, uh, almost a vegetarian for about four or five years now. I think that's good. Um, You know, I just try to avoid some stuff. And some of that's just the older you get, the fewer mistakes you can make, the more (laughs) vigilant you have to be. You know, like I can remember when I was, you know, my teens and 20s and you could drink all night and there'd be no... And then I remember in my early 20s having that first hangover. Yes. I used to wonder, have I ever had one? Yeah. That's how young I was. (laughs) Yeah. And the notion is... 
you thought you never had to pay the bill, that you could just keep eating and no no bill would come at the end of the meal. And then the bill starts coming. Yeah. Okay. So in New York, feeling starts going away. What do you do? Well, that's when I begin to get this. Well, I mean, that's when I'm – I get this theory that for the next couple of years, I will – at least for the next couple of years, anytime anybody wants to talk to me – well, because what I thought at this time when I began to get – when this feeling began to go, I began to think, what if I have a, a, another asthma attack, let's say, two weeks from now? And let's say I die and let's say there is a god. Now, I so I go up to heaven or whatever the form is and this entity, this god says to me, how come you never uh, got with the program? I mean, I, you know, and I'd say, well, you never I gave showed. you a warning. Yeah, I gave you a warning. Right. In other words, I took that very seriously that I had kind of been warned. And you don't know how many warnings you're going to have in life. And now these are like kind of brand new thoughts for you to have after a lifetime of, of not believing anything, right? Be, being either indifferent or hostile to the concept of God. I mean, my notion of Jesus is Jesus is the guy who comes into my room while I'm sleeping and strangles me. <laughs> um. And and so and and also my parents were not devout. Um, in other words, we went to whatever church was closest, and the people were nice. If we moved, like there's a ten minute radius. Okay, let's try this church, this church. And if the minister was nice, if the people in congregation were nice, then that's what we did. But we but it wasn't like we. I I never understood the dogmatic differences between an Episcopalian and a Lutheran and a Methodist and a Presbyterian. So at different points, we were all of those. So when I had this notion of maybe opening myself up, I had no place to go back to. So then I just started going to a lot of different places or anybody who wanted to talk to me, I would have to listen. If they wanted me to read something, I'd have to read it. If they wanted to invite me to a ceremony, I would have to go. And did you start forming a different belief system? Very slowly. And also what happened was uh, during this time I was doing stand-up, but I was also doing some improv and I was also doing some performance art. So this happened in June of 86. In September of 86, I had scheduled two nights to do a solo show of characters that I did at the time. And what I did was I just spent from you know July or whenever I got the idea until September and wrote a 90-minute account of this experience. And um, I did – it was two, two acts. The first act was about – in the late 70s, early 80s, out in here in L.A. in North Hollywood, I worked in the pornography industry during the Boogie Nights era. And then the second half was going to start off with this near-death attack and, t- and talk about asthma. So it was porn and asthma. So the title for the show is Heavy Breathing, <laughs> which united the, the two different ideas. And, and, um, and that show then, the second night I did it, two guys came to see it, and within the next year, both of them had given me jobs in TV. And so I went from stand-up to working in TV. What did you do in porn? Uh, wrote magazines and I wrote um, soft, soft core. And there was this building had a hallway and they had different divisions. So I was on one side of the hallway in the soft core. My girlfriend at the time was in the hardcore across <laughs> the hallway. How romantic. Because Very romantic. Because they they wanted to separate these things because if the if the cops came in to bust the hardcore the softcore could still k- keep going mm. but one other division they had was they had a division of romance novels <laughs> like harlequin not harlequin but like a knockoff right, of harlequin like bodice rippers exactly or as my daughters call them corset chronicles and <laughs> my and, sister and i my mom used to read those kind of books and we would just actually call them books with puff because they were these thick paperbacks with the foil 
that always was kind of like etched. Yes. So that was Puffy writing to us. Right. So, so anyway, so there'd be all these people doing porn all day, but every once in a while there'd be some little old lady come in with some manuscript that she'd been <laughs> working on for 10 years of some novel and she would, you know, always get down the wrong hallway and go into the wrong room and see something that she was not prepared to see. <laughs> right. What uh, what jobs did the two guys who came to see you give you? Or what did that lead to? Uh, first was a talk, the first talk show on MTV was called Mouth to Mouth. The host was Steve Scrovan. And the second was a comedian named Alan Havey. And he had the late night show in the very beginning. He's on Mad Men? Yes. Yes, he came in here. Yeah. 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 Yeah, he's a great guy, and uh, uh, and so he had the very first the late night show at the beginning of the the beginning of Comedy Central. Comedy Central was a merger of two networks. Viacom had Ha, and HBO had the Comedy Channel, and so he was he was the Comedy Channel. And were, did you go into production? Yeah, is that what you wanted to do? Um, what happened? It was so crazy um, with with Night After Night, uh, Alan's show. That I was hired as a writer, and he had just moved from New York to L.A. So the first thing that happened, like the first week that I started working, he had to fly out to L.A., get all this stuff, bring him back to New York. Well, while he was gone, I just began to organize. We didn't have a producer. I just began to organize the team. And there was a consultant hired for the, for the launch of this network, Tommy Shlami, who – uh, director for uh, the West Wing and um, ER, and he was the guy who started doing the walk and talk shot, and he's won multiple Emmys. He now has a show on WGN called Manhattan that's great. Anyway, so he was hired as a consultant to this to this to the HB, to HBO, and he said after a while, "Don't get a producer. Scott's doing it right now. Hire someone who knows what's expected and have them report to him, <laughs> so he doesn't make any mistakes." And that's how I became a producer. I do want to get into how what brought you to real time and all that. But let's go back for a little while just to the – so for the couple years that you listened to everything, um, what was that experience like? Because I well, feel like I would make it like a month and then I'd be like, okay, I can't do this. I can't well, do it. But you – well, first of all, I was, I was prepared to be interested. I was highly motivated. Mm-hmm. And if you just tried to do it for a month but you weren't motivated, yeah, you might give it up after a month. But I kept thinking, what if I have another asthma attack? And what if I die? Then what happens to me? So um, so I, I was – and also if someone gave me something to read, a friend of mine, or take me to a ceremony, well, now a friend is doing that. So it's not just I'm doing it by myself. I'm also going with somebody. Or I'm letting somebody pray for me. Mm-hmm. Or I'm – or and then also what happens is you start discovering that things aren't as crazy. Some of them aren't as crazy as you thought. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I didn't know much – I'd never read the Gospels, didn't know much about Jesus. So my notion of Jesus was the televangel – evangelist mm-hmm. notion of Jesus. It's Jimmy Swaggart or Jim Baker or Pat Robertson or Jerry Falwell or any of the people at that time. That's who I thought Jesus was. <laughs> Well, then you open up, you know, and in my play, Tolstoy talks a lot about Matthew 5, chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. You start reading that and you realize, oh, there's a whole different guy here who these people make money off of ignoring. And, and, and that kind of wakes you up to, well, what else? What else do I think I know but I don't really know and should I investigate? And so now where are you in terms of your 
belief system or spirituality or all of that? Well, I definitely believe in God. I definitely respect Jesus, but I also respect Lao Tzu, the, uh, the you know, who wrote the Tao Te Ching, the Taoism philosophy. I and I'm also intrigued. I love talking to people with whom I disagree. I love finding out exactly what they think and trying to be clear about it. Um, but I would, but I, I'll just since you're asking me where am I now? Well, I would just go back to last Saturday night. Um, Four people came to my – several people came to my play in the afternoon and then we went to dinner afterwards. But among them, a fellow named Stephen Mitchell um, who wrote um, a, a, a translation of the Tao Te Ching that I think is one of the great monuments in English literature. And he also wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus and the footnote in that book is where I found out that Tolstoy wrote a gospel. I first found out about Jefferson writing a gospel, then Dickens. Last was Tolstoy, and and this he, guy. He's is, in the dedication of the play, right? I read it. Oh yeah, and yes. and his wife Byron uh, Katie, Byron, Byron Katie, whose book I have some of her book, or I have a book of hers, but they know both about came. Her, yeah, they both came. Oh wow, to see it, they saw the second reading that I did at Norman Lear's house for the two of them, Norman Lear and my wife, uh, which would have been maybe January of two thousand nine, and they hadn't seen it since then. So I've done two hundred drafts since then. So they came on Saturday. And then we went out to dinner, but also uh, Sam Harris, the noted atheist and uh, and uh, author, whose new book, by the way, Waking Up, um, uh, Spirituality Without Religion, I think it's an incredible book. And He so, was the guest on that episode of Real Time that everyone's been talking about because Ben Affleck was making all sorts of faces. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and actually, and, and – uh, and Sam was kind of the flashpoint because Bill wanted to start off talking about his book and then the discussion went from there. Right. But um, uh, so Sam, this new book is you know, waking up. What it's trying to do is it's trying to bridge the world of people who believe in an organized religion and then the world of people who detest organized religion but still have a sense of life's mysteries. This is probably a book for you. Yeah. I would love the play. When – now, did you write it a long time ago or the idea came a long time ago? The idea came in steps because first I found out about Jefferson, uh, 1988. Then I found out about Dickens in 1996 and Tolstoy in, in, in 98. So what I – so this thing has transformed tremendously over a period of time. Uh, I mean it's uh, – for a while, for many years, it took place in a museum. For many years, it took place in their three studies – in three different cities, in three different time eras, and they weren't really talking to each other. And then finally I got the notion of, of an interrogation room that's kind of a limbo setting. Yeah, and so for the listeners trying to visualize it, the play takes Dickens, Tolstoy, and Jefferson and puts them all together mm-hmm. in a pretty minimal – well, I've read it, so I haven't seen it, but I imagine a very like minimalist kind of set. Um, and it's really good, and it has moments where I laughed out loud. So is it inten- – it's intended to be a comedy? It, yes, it's because I also want – I think if you're sitting down and the lights come up and three of the most intimidating historical characters in the world come on stage, you want to as quickly as possible have a sense of, oh, they're also funny. I mean Dickens was incredibly funny. Jefferson, there's only like two things he ever wrote that come close to humor. One line he wrote uh, to one of his nephews in one of his in his last years. He wrote Rules for Living and one of the, and, and one of his observations was no one ever regrets having eaten too little. <laughs> but I but otherwise he 
everything's serious to him. Right. And and Tolstoy is angry a lot, so he, we, sometimes we're laughing at him because he's a belligerent character. Uh, there's a line in the play that's actually from Tolstoy that Anton Chekhov, the um, the great Russian playwright uh, who is a friend of Tolstoy's, um, on his deathbed, Chekhov died when he was 44. On his deathbed, Tolstoy says to him, I hate Shakespeare's plays, but yours are worse. <laughs> I loved that. Well, I didn't realize who, that's – yeah. Who would do that? Who would say that to a dying man? Right. I detest your work. <laughs> I know we're friends, but before you die, let me, make, important a, that let I me let... make a clear. <laughs> yeah. I just don't respect what you've done with your life. But Dickens, I think we laugh the most at Dickens, right? Because mm-hmm. he comes off as almost like lovably buffoonish at times. Well, he's, he's – At least he, when I read it. He is an egomaniac. Yes. I mean this is true that in life, how he referred to himself, he called himself the inimitable. In other words, what he's telling you as he talks to you, he's explaining that there is no other human being on earth like, like the guy you're looking at right now and talking to. Right. Well, you, that is not a man of a, of a, of a medium-sized ego. That is, that is a man who, who thinks that he is better than everyone else and, and this, that's also – that's how he lived his life. I mean there, there was one – this is not in the play but there was one of his illustrators who wound up committing suicide and a lot of people speculate it's just because he berated this man endlessly because nothing was ever good enough. Yeah, I didn't know that much about Dickens. I mean of course I've read Dickens um, – in school and stuff, but I didn't know that much about how he really was. And not delightful. He, well, well, yes, horrifying <laughs> in many ways. Uh, there was uh, after he died, um, one of his children, uh, George Bernard Shaw, many years ago, many years later, wrote a critical essay about Dickens, and one of Dickens' daughters wrote to Shaw saying, "Thank you." You know, he wasn't the guy who we think he is from what he wrote. That's always how he wishes you to think of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I've been thinking about Dickens lately as you think about Bill Cosby or even as you think about Woody Allen. You think about these beloved characters. And the other thing I was thinking today is that longevity plus technology is making it harder and harder for people to go to their graves carrying their secrets. Yes. Impossible if you reach a certain level of, of uh, recognizability, I think. Yeah, I, I, I think so too. And and also it's odd as I watch stories about Bill Cosby and they keep showing pictures of who he is now. Mm-hmm. But they're talking about events from years ago. But I'm looking at this old man and I'm thinking, how could that old man be doing these things? And then I, I know. And then every once in a while they'll show a picture of him from 20 or 30 years and you realize, like, oh, I see that person could have done this. What is your feeling about about Bill Cosby and about the allegations about everything like that? Well, I, I, I don't actually know because he has never been – there's never been a criminal charge levied, levied against him. Mm-hmm. Nothing has ever been actually proved. Uh, we have we live in a society where we must assume um, innocence, but people don't. But people don't, and I think that's that is the part that interests me the most of this. In other words, NBC has just entered into a big contract with him, but who they entered into a contract with was the guy that sold Jello and was a sitcom star for them, you know, decades ago. A lovable guy. Mm-hmm. They didn't sign a contract with someone who is notorious, but that's who he right. has become. Right now, he's scandalized. And I and I don't know what he 
does about that. I mean, I mean, Woody Allen was accused many, many years ago, and then the the daughter who says that she that or that stepdaughter says that she that he molested her, then as an adult, then went back to visit right. it from you know twenty years later. But otherwise, both those things kind of they they kind of receded back. Um, I don't know that that Will Cosby will be playing three thousand seat arenas or starring in network sitcoms. It frightens me very much the way that once an allegation is out there, so many people and you see this especially on Twitter more than in real life, people with pitchforks, but it has historical echoes to me. Um, just that sort of mob mentality. It, it frightens me the way people will just believe it because it's out there without with there. There's not proof yet. Or there's not evidence. And yet I also don't want to be on the wrong side of these things. So just as a phenomenon, in a hypothetical sense, it frightens me the way someone can just make a charge and then that person is finished. At the same time, of course, if these things are true, I feel terrible for the victims. Right. But it's like a courtroom drama where the judge will say to the jury, ignore what was just said. And of course, you know, the jury can't ignore right. what was just said. There's a, great, there's a great song by the band called The Rumor and there's a line in it. Maybe it's a lie even if it's a sin. Just because it's something terrible doesn't mean it's true. Right. Right. But there are certain kinds of allegations that people can't unhear them. But is there, is, is there a terrible allegation that you couldn't make to anyone in the world and then um, – about anyone in the world and then not think, yeah, I can see that? Well, where there's smoke, there's fire. That's what people always say. Yeah. Um, but there's nobody who I think, even I think of the most kindly people, Nelson Mandela. Well, you know, Nelson Mandela and small boys. Well, I could then, ah, yes, well, he's smiling all the time. Right. And of course, he was out amongst the people and uh, I can see that. Well, It's the my, ones you least expect. Right. That's what or, say. or that. Yes, exactly. So, so then I can, so I think our imaginations work to complete yes. those yeah. two things. We once want they're to yin-yang someone. Once they're presented, well, yes. Yeah. yeah. So Dickens, Tolstoy, Jefferson, were these people that you were fascinated with your whole life? Not really. I, I, um, I'd read Dickens. I'd read, I'd read War and Peace and Anna Karenina in 1977 while taking a 10-day train trip on the Trans-Siberian Railway going east from Moscow to Vladivostok. And so I'd taken these books thinking, I will have 10 days. I was traveling with my brother. We just read. We played chess, games of chess and drank tea. That was the 10 days. Halfway through. Le- so uh, quaint. Five, oh, I know. It, it's incredible. <laughs> it was incredible. I would kind of like to do it again, although I think Russia is maybe even more dangerous now than it was then. Um, but um, so, I knew just to- I, so I knew that about Tolstoy. I knew nothing about his life. I knew nothing really about Dickens' life. Um, and Jefferson, I knew a little bit. I, I'd been to Monticello. But, but a lot of Jefferson scholarship has just come out in the recent decades, uh, DNA testing and, and, and just more um, scholarly work done on what it was like to own slaves or to be owned by uh, the, the, the white master uh, in that era. There's a great book by Annette Gordon-Reed called The Hemingses of Monticello, Won the Pulitzer Prize for History, I think in 2008. And it's an incredible book about what it was like for these people. Um, 
And, and, and you can't read it without rethinking who Jefferson might have been. So in the play, the three characters wonder why, why them? Why are they together? And I believe it is revealed what the common thread is, which I don't know if I should say or I don't know if it's spoiler or not to say that. Or is it still questionable whether well, that's well, the thread? Well, as, as the play starts, they don't really know each other. Tolstoy did see Dickens perform Christmas Carol once in London. Uh, that's true. But n- neither of them met Jefferson. Jefferson was died in 1826. Tolstoy didn't die until 1910. They didn't really know each other. So, so, But Tolstoy's heard of Dickens, certainly, and he was a big Dickens fan. Heard of Jefferson. Dickens knows who Jefferson is, but Jefferson doesn't know who the other two are, and Dickens doesn't know who Tolstoy is. So there's a time early in the play when they're kind of It's three alpha males establishing who might be the best or who might be the strongest. And then what they they come to decide as we get to the first act is, oh, they discover we all three wrote gospels and they think we must be in this room to fit them into one account. Um, And and whether or not that actually is the reason that they're is something that that the play deals with later on. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a line pretty early on, um, I believe it was Jefferson who says it, which is, what good did God intend by the sensation of grief? Yes. And that's, that's an actual line of, of Jefferson's. And there's another line uh, in the play where Jefferson says another true line of Jefferson's, the art of life is the art of avoiding pain. And certainly he was that guy. Um, I mean, one of the things to think about for these, for these three people is that Jefferson and Tolstoy, at the moment of their birth, received everything that a baby could have received from that culture. In other words, they were born male in a male-dominated culture. Uh, Jefferson's born white in a white-dominated culture. He was, he was born into the upper class so he could be educated. He could travel. He could own property. He could vote. Um, Tolstoy was a count. His, 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 he, was, he was born to a titled family with thousands of acres and hundreds and hundreds of – they had slaves, serfs they called them, and uh, many different estates, um, limitless money. Um, it, and it, what's interesting – one of the things in, interesting to me is they became more radical. They're much more radical about dealing with society. They, they're much in favor of revolution. Mm-hmm. Dickens is born to a lower middle class um, setting. His father's a, a, a clerk, uh, works for the government, and then he overspends, loses his job, and they wind up in, in a debtor's prison when Dickens is 12 and he's taken out of school. He's much more conservative in so many ways. So as the play develops, they have much more radical notions of, of Jesus, and he pretty much hews to the normal, orthodox Jesus that is most often taught. And that's the and that's the tension is the the tension that these three have with their accounts of who Christ really was. Yeah, Dickens is just real Christmassy. He's very Christmassy, but you can also see for a child who, when the family is thrown into prison, the mother lets his sister stay in school. She takes him out of school and he's sent to work in a factory, and he is assigned. You must work. You must save as much money as you can. And then you are going to buy us out of prison. Can you imagine being 12 years old and your family's freedom depends on you? So, so he always, I think, always had this sense. I mean, this is my speculation, but I think he always had a sense of it could all go away at any moment. 
I could lose my audience tomorrow. I could um, – everything could just be reversed and I, and I could find myself back in a debtor's prison. Mm-hmm. And that feeling of debt and that feeling that this could all go away, is that something you identify with or am I reaching too far? <laughs> You're not reaching too far. I mean with me, it would be about um, health. You know, that, oh, this can all go away. Or I had years where I was struggling as a stand-up before I got into TV. And, well, this could all end. I mean, we're now in our 12th year on real time, and I don't know that any of us thought it would go 12 years. And we're going to be back for our 13th. So, you know, and, and but, you know, Bill will often say, we're playing with house money. <laughs> yes, this could go away, and we've had an incredible run. And at some point, you just need to be living in gratitude. Uh, and and think that everything else will will work out and everything goes away at some point and just be grateful for just this long run we've had. Why uh, why um, do this as a play as opposed to I don't know TV movie movie movie? Well, it's three historical characters in a room. Sexy. I well, uh, the three actors would be delighted to hear you say that. <laughs> but um, I mean, it actually does seem very much like a play. I'm just wondering in this day and age. Well, I knew it was going to be very wordy, you know, and, 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 and for a screenplay, it's going to have to be a lot more visual. I actually have an idea for how to adapt this. Um, but words go very well in theater, that we come into theater and we kind of listen. Mm-hmm. Or it could be read as you read it. And it's probably going to be, um, we just got an offer for it to be published after this run is over the Geffen. Um, and other groups now want to do this. So I'm delighted about the reception of this. Um, so, um, it just seemed like a play. The other thing I thought was I'm working in TV. Um, let me do something that kind of has the lowest level of, of entry fee. Like in other words, you have to raise a lot of money from somebody to, to do a movie. Okay. Uh, an empty space and you get three actors and we can do a reading of the play. And I just thought this is what I should do in my spare time because it's, it has in some ways it's very ambitious. In other ways, it's very modest. One room, three actors. Mm-hmm. So when you started going into TV production, did you – I mean initially it sounds as if the dream was for you to be in front of the camera if you were doing stand-up. Sort of. But I had started – I started acting when I was 13. The first play I was in it was a production of Thornton Wilder's Our Town. I started directing and 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 producing schools uh, plays when I was in high school and wow. then and then college. I helped found a theater group that is still going after forty five years in Tucson, Arizona, called the Invisible Theater. You went to U of A. Yeah, I went to the U of A. I was a wildcat. What did you major in? Bear uh, down. Well, it bear down. Uh, <laughs> uh, philosophy and drama, and um, and and so. Um, and then I'd worked in news. I was uh, the the arts editor of the college newspaper, mm-hmm. the the Daily Wildcat. <laughs> and I am now in Gary's the, Reddit. I am I am now in the Wildcat. I am the Wildcat <laughs> Hall of Fame. Oh wow! I was inducted a couple of years ago. Congrats! So thank you very much. It's um, so um, so anyway. So when I first began to do producing in TV, it was kind of a combination of running a theater group and also running um, like a staff on a newspaper. Did you miss um, the limelight? <clears throat> I always thought it was temporary. The first show that I, the first show that I was on on MTV, we were promised that it was going to run for three years, guaranteed, and instead we were canceled after ten weeks at Christmas. <laughs> 
So that led me to the notion of all television being very temporary. Enjoy it for these few weeks, and then you'll be back in nightclubs doing stand-up, or you'll be doing improv or, or whatever. Or for me, I was always off trying to also write plays or screenplays. But I never thought it would just keep going, and it has keep going. There's only Since 1988, there's only been one week where I have not known where the next job is coming from. What do you like about producing? I like the ability to get an idea and then see it realized. Or um, <clears throat> for many people, I would think, when they watch television, it's, an, it's almost alienating because the people are far away from you. But I'm watching people in a way, it's always an audition. I'm want, looking at people and thinking, oh, I'd, I'd like to meet that person and I think that they would do well on our show. And very often, I'll see someone and a month later, here they are. Hmm. And over a period of time, many of them are my friends now. Well, it's an incredible, that's an incredible world. So how did you start working with Bill Maher? He did a, at the time Alan's show was winding up at the end of 1992, Bill had been hired to do an election night special co-hosting with Will Durst. And Bill did such a great job. Then the network said, do you have an idea for a series? And he'd been toying with this idea of Politically Incorrect for a long time. So Alan's show was winding up. So I was on staff at HBO, but I was free. And he had this idea that was going to be the next thing up. So we were put together. And then that's just led to this. How many years has it been now that you guys have been working together? (sighs) 22 but I mean, there, there was a break in the middle and Politically Incorrect ended and, th- and this show started a while later. But, 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 over, but since January of 93. Well, let's talk about something really serious for a moment. Snacks. Nature Box. Uh, I'm going to give you guys the chance to get free snacks, natural, delicious snacks at naturebox.com. We've got zero artificial ingredients, zero trans fats, zero high fructose corn syrup. I like the peanut butter nom noms, the big sweet potato fries, the dark cocoa almonds. All of them are good. And you guys can get a special free trial. And when you get your free trial, you get a free sampler box featuring five of their most popular snacks. And I think I've made my feelings about sampler boxes clear before, which is I prefer sampler boxes to pretty much anything else. I just like the variety. So to start your free trial, go to naturebox.com slash Allison. Again, that is naturebox.com slash Allison. Yes. And Allison, let me say to you, since we are now best friends, Mm -hmm. how you have a real gift for listening that many people who have been doing shows for a long time never get. Thank you. And so, and often people aspire to saying, oh, we're going to have a conversation. It's not going to be an interview. It's going to be a conversation. I actually feel talking with you actually is a conversation. Oh, thank you. That is is what I strive for. Many strive, not everyone achieves. Oh, well, that's very nice. And since we're best friends, I'll tell you, I'm going to Tucson for the first time for Thanksgiving. My husband is from Tucson. I've never been there. And what high school? Oh, good question. Do you know, Gary? I think you went to Rialto. Rialto is so new that I do not even recognize that as the name of an official high school. I was a cougar. I was in the first graduating class of Saguaro High School. No, that's where he went. Oh, that's where he went, Saguaro. I'm pretty sure that that's where he went because I know that – because Saguaro was spelled somewhere With an H. Yes. And the plant is actually spelled with a G. Rialto is not even a high school. I mix it up with a theater name. No, there's something. There's something with there R. There is a Rialto though. theater. I didn't yeah. go to high school there. There's I only something went to college, with so. R though, because I know we were checking into a hotel. Rincon. Yes. Yes. What Rincon. Is, what is Rincon? Rincon. Is they are the Rangers. Then that's where he went. <laughs> oh, okay. <All laughs> it's, right. He went to. Sorry, he went to Rincon. That's okay. right. Because I remember we checked into a hotel and they said 
that their internet password was Rincon, and he said, that's the high school I went to, I think. But he also has some affiliation with Saguaro, maybe the plant. Oh, well, it's a non-hallucinogenic plant, so I don't know what he was doing with it. But Rincon was, at one point, it was the easternmost uh, high school in Tucson. And then the next was Palo Verde, where I went for freshman and sophomore year. And at the same time, I went to Palo Verde. Also, Gary Shandling went to Palo Verde. Um, And then that got so big that then Saguaro was built and then another one called Santa Rita. And whenever I go out there now, they just proliferate um, with new high schools and people just keep coming there. Um, so where will you be staying? At his mom's house. And do you know where she, where is she? What part of town? Tucson. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Um, I'm assuming from your question that there are different little neighborhoods. Sure, of and course. areas. Of course. I don't As- actually know. I really should bone up on my Tucson. And I, speaking of <clears throat> you saying I'm good at listening and having conversations, clearly like this is a conversation I haven't really had with him because I don't, I don't know what to expect. I just know that there's a room that has its own bathroom and that we'll be staying there. And I know that we're going to be driving and it's going to take eight hours. And I know that I'm going to see where I grew up. That's like all I know. Go to the Desert Museum. Okay. Go to the Desert Museum. Uh, downtown. Um, uh, well, when was I mean, the last time you were back? I get back. I get back, um, oh, a couple times a year. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And my mother, who died a couple of years ago during the last year, year and a half or so of her life, every time we had a break, my daughter and I would go back and visit her. I don't go as much now, but um, um, the Congress Hotel is kind of a cool place. It's owned by friends of mine, and it's actually a place where the John Dillinger gang was was captured because there was a fire in the hotel, and the Dillinger gang had left their guns in their hotel room. So they paid some kid $10 to go back in and get these suitcases that were enormously heavy. And then the police figured out that, oh, it's the Dillinger gang, and he was arrested in Tucson. And a girl who I went to, a woman, but I went to high school with her when she was a girl, and her grandmother had been um, John Dillinger's attorney. So, question. Yes. You mentioned your mother dying a couple years ago. So that goes back to what I brought up a little while ago. What do you think is the answer to what, what good is the sensation of grief, or what is the purpose of it? I think it I think grief allows us to more appreciate the times that are not in grief, you know. In other words, when good times are happening to you, when there's joy, it's not going to be there forever. And and grief is a reminder of 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 the temporal notion of of of, of joy. Um one of my favorite and and it's and some of these things I think about, some of them I don't. So for instance, a lot of people like, for instance, uh, when I had this um, attack and I vowed I'd listen to people, I had this – and I forget if I told this when I was here before, but I had this Jehovah's Witness who came to my door every Wednesday at 1 o'clock. And they were all very focused on what heaven was going to be like. And I don't care. There's a line that Jefferson has in the play that sums up how I feel. And it's a line that, of, of his own. But he said, I, I stopped speculating on the afterlife and instead lay my – head on the pillow of ignorance that God made <laughs> soft for me, knowing how often I should need to use it. And that's what I do a lot of the times now. I lay my head in the pillow of ignorance because I'm not going to get an answer through my speculation. I'm just wasting time. When did that realization set in? Because I am someone, I was just having a conversation about this recently with someone like I, I'm, i overanalyze everything. And I'm always asking questions, including questions about things that there are no answer to. And at a certain point, it was actually 
it was someone who's a doctor. And what he said is doctors don't spend that much time pondering the unknowable to preserve their sanity, which I don't know if that's true or not. But and I was like, well, I I can't I, – I wish I could – well, I'm not a doctor, but I wish I could arrive at that. Arrive at that like to preserve my sanity, I'm going to stop – trying to figure out what just cannot be measured or cannot be figured out. But I'm just not wired that way. But I think you have to if you're a doctor. I think that you become um, uh, inoculated after a period of time to the most dangerous aspects of whatever you do. For instance, if I tell people, you know, they're talking about our show and, well, when do you tape and how long does it take? And I say, it's live. We do it live in front of an audience. It's an hour and whatever happens, happens. And then we're done and we go off and have a drink. Um, I very often forget that it's live. Mm-hmm. I, I just we, – we just we show up and it all happens and we bring everything together and we've got a great team. Most of the people we work with have been working together between 12 and 22 years. So we all know what we're doing and, um, and, it, and 99 times out of 100, it's a great show and we love it and the guests have a great time and the ratings stay up and all this. And, but you kind of forget, oh, that was live just now. Well, what if – and also over a period of time, everything's happened. We've had the prompter breakdown. We had, we had a riot in the audience one time. What one, caused that? Um, it was truthers. Bill had done a new rule. You haven't seen that? Bill, Bill had done a new rule criticizing truthers. So the next week, they came and they planted themselves in different places in the audience and they just started shouting. It's the most amazing – I watch it every three months probably <laughs> when I need to laugh. It's the most amazing piece of live television I've ever seen in my entire life. I have to go home and he, watch it. He literally goes into the audience and like throws one of the guys out himself. It's amazing. Yeah, Chris Matthews was on that show and he's actually going to be on this Friday's show. It's the last show of the season. We have John Cleese at the top. And Seth Rogen's coming out mid-show. And then the panel is Roland Martin, Chris Matthews, and oh, wow. Christian Freeland, who's now an MP in the Canadian Parliament. And she was in the building when that shooter came. And she was one of the people who had to go and hide in the basement until they captured the shooter. Wow, it's an amazing show. Well, it, every week, you know, it's just – it's this amazing collection of people. I mean, last last week I, – I, I loved that show last week. Martin Short was incredible. Martin, and, I love him. And we had Rand Paul at the top. Have you read Martin Short's book? I ha- most certainly have. It's called I Must Say, and it's both funny. And there were so many funny stories that I wanted him to get on on camera, and yet it turned into this very interesting conversation with Bill. But he, had, he has this one incident in the book when he's starting off as an actor in Canada, and he comes into this audition, and he, and he, and he comes in and sits down, and then he looks around, and everyone in the room, it's a guy – his age, his height, his hair color, they look just <laughs> like him. So he's got his head shot and he takes a Sharpie and he goes into the bathroom <laughs> and he draws a goatee on the headshot. <laughs> then he draws a goatee <laughs> with the Sharpie on his own face. <laughs> and then the casting director comes and he's just taking all the, all the, uh, the headshots and he goes all around the room. When it comes to Martin Short, Martin Short has a Sharpie goatee <laughs> on his face and a guy with a Sharpie drawn on the headshot. And the guy doesn't even notice. He just takes it and, and, and goes. Um, when you've be- been as successful as Martin Short has, when you look back on incidents like that, it's okay because you became exceedingly successful. So now that's hilarious. Right. But if nothing ever happened... That would have been one of the incidents that you, you would say to yourself, that should have told me to stop. Right. That's <laughs> so true. Why didn't I quit then? Yeah, you'd cringe when you thought of it. Let's do Just Me or Everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? 
But first, look what I did. I said we're going to do something, but now I'm not. Um, tell me about Harmony. One of the, when I first got the first draft of this of the play that's now at the Geffen through December seventh, when I first got it done, everybody hated it. I showed it to my wife, my lawyer, my agent. It was 151 pages, ten point type. It was it was a mess because it was the kitchen sink of everything that interested me about either religion or these three guys. I put it away for three years. I direct. I we were doing real time. I also did a show with Lewis Black on Comedy Central called Root of All Evil. And there got to be a place where there was like a two-month gap where I had nothing to do. So I read the, this terrible first draft and I realized, oh, I was trying to do two different things at once. Oh, let me just separate them. So I boiled it down and, and took half the stuff out and just put it aside. Well, what I want in the other night, this other show that will be the same first part of the title, Gospel According to Thomas Jefferson, Charles Dickens, and Count Leo Tolstoy, Harmony, second night. Um, it takes place in the theater where Discord's being performed, and the characters are the three actors who play Jefferson, Dickens, and Tolstoy in this current production, and one of them thinks the other two are phoning it in. <laughs> so he has called them to the theater on a day off to admonish them, and um, and I I am almost done with the first draft. I think it's going to be really incredible, but the other thing is if it goes to Broadway or off-Broadway – Instead of the actors playing the same character eight times a week, they'd play like four times a week, you'd play Charles Dickens. The other four times, you're playing an actor with his own backstory who happens to be playing Charles Dickens in this production of Discord. So I feel like it's going to be – it's going to continue to be interesting to these people. They're going to find new things and they're not going to get tired of it. And the actors they're playing, are they themselves or are they – No, oh, no. So I you're have... writing characters of actors. Exactly. So they're going to have to come to <laughs> this character that I've written, right. which I am delighted by you know, thinking about. And I hope you know, at some point in the not-too-distant future, I can't go another 27 years to get a first you – know, to get a working draft of this one. <laughs> this one will be on an accelerated pace. Well, that's very cool. How old are your kids? 19 um, and 14. And have they seen the play? The 19-year-old, who's now a freshman at Bryn Mawr, when it was done at the NoHo Art Center January and February, she saw it so often that she memorized the whole thing and saw different drafts of it to the point where one time she said, why'd you take this line out? <laughs> and the line is now back in because she identified, you know, I said, what line are you talking about? And she told me to go, I said, yeah, I don't know why that's not in now. I'll put it back in. Ooh, which line is it? It's the line where Jefferson explains that he did not celebrate his children's birthdays or and he did not celebrate Christmas. He didn't celebrate his own birthday. In fact, when he was president, he didn't want people to know his birthday because he didn't want them to worship him like a king. So he kept that – he tried to keep it a secret when he was president. He only uh, observed two holidays, New Year's Day and July 4th. And I think that says a lot about him, so it's back in the play now. Mm. Well, I think that was the right call. I think so, too. <laughs> All right. So just smear everyone. Marcus Engstrom says, I use paper towels instead of Kleenex. It's more durable and one sheet can last days. No, but then you end up scraping your nose up. That's the problem. I will use paper towels in a pinch. However, if I have a cold and I go a long stretch of paper towels and not Kleenex, I, my nose is all chafed by the end. You guys? Oh yeah, no. You gotta you gotta use Kleenex. I mean, paper towel in a pinch. But if you're worried about durability, 
what are you doing? Yeah, no. And also, I think everyone who's ever been poor knows if you run out, of, if you don't have Kleenex, use toilet paper. Yeah, I could not agree more. Uh, I'm, I'm, I applaud your courage for taking on the third rail <laughs> yeah. of, of American culture by going after this topic. But I think also the harsher the paper that you're using on your nose, the more quickly you appreciate just how fragile skin is. Yes. Yes, indeed. I realize just how fragile skin is, but also how fr- sort of John Cleesian I am. If I get in a package from Amazon or something, just trying to open that up, I end up tearing my hands a little bit. I don't know why. I resent Jeff Bezos as I'm trying to open packages yes, from Amazon. Exactly. Jamos and Bobo says eating a sandwich without cutting it is like eating a caveman. Is no, excuse me. Eating a sandwich without cutting it is eating like a caveman. Yeah, who does that? I mean, I don't think it's eating like a caveman per se, but I it's feel not like eating the, like a caveman per se because I don't think a caveman would have the concept of a sandwich. Right, I don't think that's and, and I think that goes the sandwich goes back to the Earl of Sandwich, who I doubt was a caveman. Right, and I feel like all the paleo people would be on you for that. But I know what she's saying. If you're going to eat a sandwich, cut but, it. But can you imagine if you know that chart that shows the ascent of human beings, <laughs> right. and in one of the frames, it's a, a guy sandwich. with a sandwich. <laughs> I love that. Uh, all right. Maricela Mendez says, when at the movies, I must hold or make some sort of body contact with my purse at all times for fear of someone taking it. Yes, I have that. It either goes, if the floor is clean enough, in between my feet, or it's pretty much usually just on my lap. You guys probably don't have this, seen as you don't hold purses. How, how can you be certain that the floor is clean enough if it's in a movie theater? Well, I, I mean, if never... I don't see anything. Yeah, anything but, nasty. But, but I think it's safer to assume that... There is the there are the the remnants of milk duds or Twizzlers or something there. I think that's true. The closest I have to this is uh, my cell phone. I have to like make sure I can feel my cell phone at all times because a lot of, especially if I like throw my legs up or something, like it'll tend to slip out of my pocket, and then I'm always afraid that some employee will take it before I realize and get back there. In the same way that I resent Jeff Bezos when I'm uh, opening up a package from Amazon, I resent. When I have that momentary sense of just now I, I felt from my pocket where my phone is, but it's here on the John Cleese book, um, and I thought, oh, I've lost my phone, where I would – how terrible things would be for the next 48 hours or so. It's like I, your car breaking down. It's terrible. Oh, it's worse than your car breaking down. It's worse than your car breaking down because there's no Uber right. for all of my <laughs> mailing list. I could not agree list. more. Yeah. I guess what I mean by that, though, is that it's a sudden something that comes out of nowhere that you weren't expecting and you haven't scheduled and now you have to deal with it. I feel like it's easier to deal with your car breaking down than losing your phone. Okay. At least for my like work life and stuff. Yeah, true. Sputin Savage says, just mirror everyone, yawn so hard sometimes that I get a cramp in my chin or jaw. Very painful and I have to poke my chin out to make it stop. I yawn a lot, but I don't think I've ever had that. Happens to me all the time. What it, happens? It just like it feels like I don't know, like your jaw a lot. I don't know, it's just like this intense pain in your in your and you have lower to jaw. Push on it to get it back into I've place. I've never known how to get rid of it besides just wait it out. So I guess I'll try that next time. Do any of you crack your necks? No. Yes. Not my neck. I I have been doing it for decades. How often? Oh, usually once a day at least. Um, I, and I feel more alive once the <laughs> neck is cracked, and I feel I have complete mobility of my neck. Gary, is that you? Are you just you? I'm seeing you do it right now, aren't you? Yeah. Wait, do you guys both do it the same way by pushing I on don't, your chin? I, that actually wasn't what I was doing. I can do it that oh. way, but I can do it. I. 
Well, I just oh. did it, but like I can do it. I can do it without my hands. Yeah. I went through a brief phase of cracking my fingers, but then I was like, I can't do this. It's too gross to me. Yeah, I. I'm watching you crack. Yeah, I crack. Knuckles. I crack my knuckles constantly, which I'm. I don't know if it's good or bad for you. My dad constantly yells at me that it's going to make my knuckles enormous and I'll never be able to get a ring on or off. But I think that's just a problem that he has that he's decided to blame on that. Yeah. yeah. So Scott, you crack your neck. Anything else? No, but I can I can turn my feet out to about 200 degrees. In fact, the only time I appeared on the David Letterman show, it was as in a bit where I showed how far I could I could do my feet back. It's like a ballet move right there. That's it crazy. is like a ballet. It is like a I, I can also do full splits, put my stomach on the ground wow. and leave it um, and stay there for a half hour. I can wow. I can weirdly like limber. dislocate and then pop my shoulder back in without it really hurting. I, that one always freaks I can make myself out. Burp. I would not test your continued ability to do that because I you might don't. get to the day where you can't. I don't often, but every now and then if like if I screw my shoulder up, that's a way around it on one of the shoulders. It's from an old injury. Did you ever consider ballet or anything that or gym, gymnastics? No, no, or any but of that? because of this extreme limberness, there have been times where I've started trying to take yoga, and it's and feels like nothing. <laughs> We're just wasting time. <laughs> like I do this at home. Yes. Um, Katie Shrum says, "Just me, everyone. Hate coming home after work to the closet mess. Yes, that was this morning's shoe clothes indecisiveness. Uh, hashtag closet chaos. Hashtag too many shoes." Yes. I have that thing where I hate coming back to any sort of mess. And it pretty much always happens when I leave to go on a trip. I always think I'm going to pack early so that I can straighten up so that I'll come home to a clean place. And I always just come home to the mess. I think there's a huge difference between a mess in a closet where a door can be closed. Yes. And then a mess in an, in a, in an open room that cannot be ignored. I have both of them. In fact, just the other day I was realizing – how much better and more calm and just okay, contented I feel when everything's clean and neat and tidy. And yet I don't take that knowledge and therefore make sure that everything's neat and tidy all the time. Like I'm re- I can be really disorganized. And knowing that I feel better when I'm not, I should put that into practice. I have a fantasy that the end of my life will be slowly getting rid of every material object I have and when I give the last one away, I will perish. <laughs> That's sort of Tolstoyan. <laughs> it's a little bit, except that he was that he was hypocritical about what he gave away, and he didn't. Act, he liked to pretend that he gave a lot away, a lot more than he did. Mm. But still, the casting off of material possessions and things. Oh, he he aspired to it, but it's also like there there are people I've known I've known different you know huge movie stars or TV stars who often will begin a relationship or, or whatever by saying, um, don't treat me like a star. My, obser- <laughs> my observation has been that as soon as I forget to, you will remind me, you know, that, that, that they want to be seen as the common person, mm-hmm. but they actually do not wish to be treated like the common person. Do they want to be seen as the person who would say, don't treat me like a star? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's it. Laura Broder says... It freaks me out how identical all Bed Bath & Beyond stores are. Wait, let's go back to that for one second, though. Now that I've worked in this industry for a while and, and done a fair amount of TV and all of that, 
I think that at one point I had this very naive idea that, no, actually, I still believe it. None of that bullshit matters. None of the trappings of fame matter. But the more I do it, the more I realize, but they're, I suppose, a measure of where you are in your career or, I mean, they all those things like the size of your trailer or whether a car is sent for you or all those things that you're, well, I don't know if your trailer size is in there, but that someone negotiates on your behalf is like, they are symbolic of so much more. Well, what I would I say, but, but what I would say the real mark of your character is going to be when you've never had something, like let, I've never been on a movie, I've never had a trailer. Okay. So I can very easily say, who cares about the size of the trailer? Let's say that. Now, let's say I got cast in a, you know, in a movie where I had a big enough part that I got a trailer. Then let's say I was cast in another movie and it was a small independent movie and nobody got a trailer. I, would I be coming to work each day going, where's the trailer? Right. Well, you know, in other words, it's, 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 it's one thing to say, I don't need this thing. It's one thing to have had it for a while, then have it taken away and not resent it. Mm-hmm. But you're right. If all of a sudden it's a movie where no one has a trailer, then you should be able to assess the situation and realize that it's not a personal slight. I think that's, okay, that's the foible right, is when but, people start taking this stuff personal. Well, then what about this example? That The next movie you're on, there is one person who has a trailer and you are among all the others who do not. The commoners? Yes, you're <laughs> among the commoners. Yeah. Do you deserve the trailer or does it make sense why this other person got the trailer? <laughs> well, are these thoughts going through your mind instead of you learning your lines each day? Makes sense to whom? Well, I, I just think – You are the producers of the movie. Well, d- can you accept it without resentment? Yes, that depends. I, well, that's – I mean that's like the thing – like let's say you and some – well – Okay, hypothetical work situation. You have the same job as someone else. You find out they're making a salary that's much more than yours. Ideally, it shouldn't matter, but it's going to bug you. Yeah. Um, I, over a period of time, have found out that no one is actually doing the same job. Over a period of time. In other words, let's say if on our staff we have you know three writers. I mean, we have more than three. But in other words, none of them are actually doing the exact – they all have different skills. And they've all been there for a different length of time and – and they have different agents who struck better. No, it's never equal. Right. Right. All right. Laura Broder says, it freaks me out how identical <clears throat> all Bed Bath & Beyond stores are. Yes. Same with Ikea's. There are certain stores that just replicate all over. I don't, say, I don't think it freaks me out, though. Maybe it's comforting. If it freaked you out, stop going to new ones. <laughs> In other words, that, that is a very easily handled phobia. Yeah. <laughs> uh, John Cleese in his book talks about how crazy his mother was. And he has a half page where he lists everything that bothered her. And then at the end, he says, for my mother, the cosmos was a vast booby trap. <laughs> in other words, everything set her off. Yeah. Loud noises, but also silence. That <laughs> bothered her also. Um, well, she would have been great at this segment. Bonzer says, sometimes at work I smell something and can't tell if it's weird food from a coworker or a weird fart from a coworker. I would wonder what kind of food they normally eat. Um, I mean, I get what you're – this is not a situation I find myself often, but I get what you're saying, that sometimes there's a little bit of overlap, but not that often. I have almost no sense of smell. Oh. So I could have the most odiferous coworker as close to me as is humanly possible and I could still be serene. How lucky for you. 
in some ways. But in some ways, um, actually, you want an acute – my wife has a very acute sense of smell. She can – well, sometimes it's a curse because she will walk into a room, uh, let's say at a party, and some woman can have some perfume on across the room. And she'll say to me, we've got to leave. We cannot stay. Don't you smell that? No, of course I can't smell it. Well, I can't stay here while this smell exists. <laughs> well, it's and so we have to leave. Attack. Yeah. And, and I mean, she smells everything. And not only that, but she has like a perfumer's ability to analyze. So she can, she can you know, somebody will have a perfume or something and she'll go, well, the top note is this. It's informed by this and blah, blah, blah. There's also this in mm-hmm. it. I mean, it's incredible. She could, that could have been a career for her. But um, so I'm, I'm the exact opposite. And I know of other people that I've met who have no sense of smell. I once knew a man with no sense of smell. He was a writer for us in New York. And um, he came across, he was kayaking in the Hudson one time around Manhattan, came across a dead body. And, and his lack <laughs> of smell allowed him to move the dead body wow. and, and get it you know, onto the kayak and, and take it to, to shore. It's very heroic. Well, I guess you could look at that that way. He just looked at it. How many times am I going to see a dead body in the course of my life? And I guess I should do the right thing by moving it to the shore and and calling the authorities. The fact that I cannot smell it (laughs) it helps me be a good citizen in this instance. That's good. And I imagine you would have done the same, not smelling the body. Right. But I probably wouldn't have been out on the kayak in the first place. (laughs) Right. Shuey says... Uh, just mirror everyone, brag about the weather in my new warmer home, Atlanta, on social media and piss off friends back home in Connecticut. Hashtag weather douche. No, that's not me because I, I don't do any bragging about weather on social media. But I will say this for me. I lived in New York for 20 years. The last winter that I was there, there were 16 snowstorms and they came with such frequency that the snow from the previous storm had not melted away before the next one. So it was like archaeological layers of snow that piled up over the course of the winter. I get out here, and I still subscribe to the New York Times. And often during the February, there'll be a picture on the front page, and there'll be some blizzard. I will regard that picture like a problem from a third world country <laughs> that civilized countries should have solved by now. Why are people still dealing with snow? How backward of them. Right. All right. And finally, Just Smear Everyone, and I love that there's now an account called Just Smear Everyone, named after the segment, says, hearing ghost stories gets me paranoid and I think that my house is suddenly haunted. Yes, I have that. I'm very... I frighten easily and I'm very suggestible. So when people mention ghost stories or weird occurrences or I see a a commercial for a horror movie or something, I can all of a sudden freak out. In fact, I can be in a house and I can walk down the hall and I can know there's someone also coming down the hall or something and I'll I'll know it, but I'll still like jump or flinch a tiny bit when I see them. So that's me. You guys? What I love about this segment is – that you're not actually passing judgment on the person. Oh, no. Because you're only saying whether or not you share this perception of existence. Right. And you're, you're not proud or ashamed of your relationship to them. And, it's, and I think it's genius. I think it's great. Thank you. Yeah. I think what I'm saying is, hey, we're all in this together. Or unless, not. Unless we aren't. Yeah, unless we aren't. <laughs> right. And, unless it and, turns out I'm the only one. Right. And then, thank God, we're clarifying it. Yeah. So do you guys ever feel like if someone starts telling a ghost story, does it have any effect on you? Not really. No. No. I wish I were that way, but I'm not. All right. 
If you guys want to buy something on Amazon, the Amazon we were talking about earlier, click through the banner on my website, AllisonRosen.com. doesn't cost you anything extra, but it does, have a, does help out the show. And thank you all so much for your support on Amazon. We have a ringtone available. Hey, 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 go fuck yourself. From a segment of the same name, which we didn't do in this show, but we should get back to. But actually, Adam, did you notice that Adam did a segment on his show, Tweet and a Miss, where I was kind of like, you need, you almost need to play this little jingle, hey, that one, hey, at the end of it. Hey, go fuck yourself. You can get that. Uh, we, so it's a ringtone that is available, and you can get that by searching Hey, Go Fuck Yourself on your iPhone in the iTunes store. We also have two special bonus episodes that you can get. They were recorded live at the L.A. Podcast Festival, the first one with Doug Benson and Greg Proops, the next one with Doug Benson, music- musician Matt Costa, and much of the Thursday gang. Those are $1.99 in the comedy album section of the iTunes store. Scott Carter, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been a delight to be here. I do feel you are truly my new best friend, and I hope that we will remain friends forever. Yes, I. we better. And I want to come see the play now that I've read it before it goes away. Um, so tell everyone where they, where they should go and what they should do. Geffen Playhouse, just go to geffenplayhouse.com. Geffen Playhouse is right next to the UCLA campus. Eight shows a week, and it's going to be there uh, at least through December 7th. My hope is it goes longer than that. And are you on Twitter? Yes, I am. Okay. Do you want people to go find you there? They could – or they could find um, hashtag three dead guys, which is the, the play, or JDT Project, or uh, Discord. Okay. And, of course, they should watch Real Time. Watch Real Time. It's going to be the season finale. So if you, if you miss it when it's gone, you have to watch it Friday. All right. And were you going to say something, Gary? Will it re-air the finale? The finale, everything on cable re-airs. Because the finale was three days ago, so we got to find a re-airing. Oh, when this, oh, uh, when this airs. Oh, right. I see. Yes. Oh, it, they always keep re-airing. Um, uh, real so set times. your TiVo. Yep. Set your TiVo. Yep. That's right. And then Sorry. we'll be back on January 9th, 2015. All right. And you can follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. You can follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-M-B-F. You can follow Gary at G. Patrick Smith. And Kaylin, still not on social media. Yeah, don't worry about me. Which now leads to a fan site someone created, don'tworryaboutme.com. So actually, when you say don't worry about me, you're plugging this site. <laughs> well, I'm not going to give up my trademark <laughs> uh, slogan, so too bad. That'll be appearing on there shortly, I'm sure. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you again. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? We had a good time, but now we got to go. Thank you for choosing the Allison Rosen Show.
This is Corolla Digital. Now that the show's over, don't forget to go to naturebox.com and sign up to get your free sampler box of great-tasting, healthy snacks. Forget the vending machine and start snacking smarter with delicious treats like barbecue kettle kernels. Go to naturebox.com slash allison. That's naturebox.com slash allison.